This is 10 Questions to Cyber Resilience, brought to you by Assurance IT. Released twice per month, every episode brings you one step closer to cyber resilience by hearing how IT leaders are practicing cybersecurity. Resources mentioned in the episode can be found in the show notes. If you're ready to take your cyber resilience to the next level, be sure to subscribe so you can catch every episode. Thank you for joining us today, Jay, on our podcast. I got Jay Wilson from Insurity on the line with us. I'll let Jay introduce himself because he's got a long list of experience and expertise that he's going to share with us. And really happy you can make the time for us today, Jay. So go ahead and introduce yourself before we jump into today's episode. Awesome. Thanks, Luigi. Thanks for inviting me to talk with you today. I come from a wide range of technical background. Started off as a software developer back in the day and became a CTO at a couple startups that didn't get big and then moved my way into technical consulting at Tetro um, before going to my last job, which was at HealthGrades, where I was the CISO there. And now I'm a CISO at Insurity. So wide range of background in engineering, technical development, consulting, and then kind of merged into security. Uh, excited to be in the security space, even more excited to be at Insurity as well. Nice. Sounds interesting. I like that. Being a CISO at a healthcare organization, that's not the easiest job, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Bless everyone who is still in those roles. Very challenging. You know, healthcare, like many other sectors, but I think especially healthcare just faces so many different challenges, very regulated, very targeted. We had a lot of targeted attacks that came our way in that, in that space. Healthcare data is just so prized by the underbelly, the hackers, the dark web, right? It's very powerful information. Yeah, I agree. That's why I wanted to comment on that. But now you've moved to Insurity. You're based in Colorado. Correct. Based in Denver. And tell us a little bit about Insurity, because Insurity is a pretty interesting company. I, I know them from a past life, and I know some of the folks there. Give us a little bit about Insurity, because uh, that's going to kind of be a segue into our episode here. Yeah, absolutely. So Insurity is the largest cloud-based SaaS provider of insurance technologies to the PNC market in North America. So we're kind of providing the glue for a lot of property casualty insurers and other lines of insurance across North America, but also across the globe. Um, I just get to use largest when I say North America. Everybody likes superlatives. You know, we're connecting those insurers with the technology they need to accelerate their business. So if insurers want to spin up new capabilities inside their business, they can lean on our systems and softwares and teams to help accelerate that work for them. In today's episode, we're going to talk a lot about SaaS and maybe even platform as a service and how to secure cloud and, and SaaS, and not only from the enterprise, but also as an end user, what you should know, right? Now, being a SaaS platform, let's talk a little bit about, you know, how we've seen the evolution of SaaS. Many enterprises have moved to a SaaS uh, offering, even past and in some ways. And this is kind of a question that we can debate back and forth. Now, SaaS is supposed to lower the total cost of ownership, right? I'd like to discuss that because there is a lot of debate around when you move to SaaS, there's an initial CapEx investment that, that's done. But in the long term, I'd like to hear what you have to say about the caveats and, of course, the pros and cons of moving to a SaaS platform. Just your experience on that. Sure. Look, there's multiple kind of perspectives, I'd say, on SaaS and PaaS versus, you know, building things internally. But being an IT and security professional for many years now, I would say we're not at the point where we're deciding whether we use it, but where we use it. It isn't a choice. 
you have to use it really to get certain capabilities out the door in certain timeframes. So you have to be thoughtful in the way you use it. And as a SaaS provider, I would say that we play a similar role for our clients where we're providing them capabilities that really they need. So it, yes, there's a certain balance to that equation. Okay, if we build it ourselves and we own it, we certainly know what the TCO is gonna be over time. But in the context of maybe point solutions, you can contain it or you can build the right partnerships with the right vendors, I'd say. I think I can't imagine building and owning an IT infrastructure without relying on critical SaaS partners. That's a very fair statement. And frankly, we do offer here at Assurance IT some sort of SaaS solutions for our clients. So, I mean, it's a debate because I like to hear both sides of it, but ultimately I think it's important, as you mentioned, there's an evolution of, you know, where you're using, how you're using it versus your, your statement earlier that was on point. I tend to agree with that. I guess one thing that I've seen lately in the news, and maybe you've seen this as well, is there's a lot of articles pointing back to companies looking at bringing some stuff back on-prem. And I know this is not application-centric, but this is just infrastructure-centric. And I know Insurity probably does a lot of cloud-based infrastructure. I know you guys are probably a big IaaS consumer as well. But what's your take on that whole argument about bringing our hardware back on-prem? Have you yeah. seen that as well? I have actually, I've seen it in a couple different places. It's an interesting trend. And I think that it, like anything, there's right use cases to bring back and there's wrong use cases to bring back. But most commonly what I see around cloud, let's just take cloud as an example. You sometimes have businesses that have, call it a lack of depth in the operational side of using cloud. And that's where you tend to have those pullbacks have to occur. Because if you don't have the operational acumen to like really own and operate with your partner, your cloud partner in the appropriate manner, your bill turns into a blank check, right? It gets really dangerous really fast. So I think that the pullbacks that we're seeing are businesses recognizing, look, whichever way you want to look at it, we're better in an operating mode and an on-prem kind of world. And that's not a judgment, but I can say at Insurity, we're very good at operating in a cloud environment. You know, every business comes from different DNA or bones, right? And I think that those are good decisions for some firms and maybe not good decisions for others. So uncontrollable cloud costs are causing people to revisit their strategy. I think it's more predictable when you buy a server. And I'm just using one very simple example. You buy the server, you know what it's going to cost you, yeah. how long you can amortize it, and you know what it costs to operate that. And I think, like you mentioned, it stems from the fact of maybe having a lack of skill set to operate one cloud or multi-cloud strategy. There is a complexity of working with either one cloud vendor or multi-cloud vendor, uh, having a multi-cloud vendor approach. So I appreciate what you've said, and that makes a lot of sense. And for, for a lot of companies, if they can't understand the cost or they can't contain the cost, I think that causes a panic, like you mentioned, and they just say, okay, let's let's come back on-prem. And, and frankly, if you're able to successfully operate in an on-prem world and do that in a cost-efficient and an operationally efficient manner and one that doesn't hamper your engineering or R&D capabilities, all the more power to you. There's nothing wrong with that. It's been working for 20 years. I don't really have anything bad to say about it because I came from that world. Right, um, right. I think it's more to say, if you are able to operate in a cloud-based environment, you mm -hmm. can put the right controls, processes, teams, expertise around it and make it profitable to your business, then that's even more powerful. That's how I look at it. Like 
if you can do it and do it well, you should, because cloud tends to give you more flexibility and capabilities. But if you can't, and you've figured out how to make on-prem work for your business, that's awesome, right? Like neither one is a bad choice. It's just like everything, the, yeah. the devil's in the details, right? Well, I think ultimately we're seeing a hybrid approach becoming the ultimate architecture, I think, for a lot of businesses. I mean, you still have a lot of businesses, especially in the healthcare, especially in the utilities space, you have a lot of legacy hardware that sometimes it's very difficult to transition to a virtual or a cloud provider. So I think ultimately in the large enterprise, you're still going to see some hybrid, the banks, the financial institutions, the healthcare, of course, and the insurance business. You're an outlier. I mean, you're insurance, but I think you've been one of the ones that have gone full SaaS and be able to provide a solution to your clients that's fully turnkey, which is admirable. Can you tell us though about cloud security? Because I think that's become a topic that people they shied away from for a while. And now it's become top of mind because if you're operating in a SaaS or in a cloud-based environment, you have to have the skill set to secure a cloud, right? So what's your take on that? Can you tell us a little bit about your experience around that? Are we up to speed when it comes to skill sets in the market? Are the cloud providers giving us the right tools to properly secure the cloud and SaaS environments that we're operating? Yeah, that's a big topic, right? I could go lots of different yeah, directions. I, I know, I know, I know, um, I know. <laughs> so look, I think that there's still some catching up in the business on cloud and security. When you look at the origins of cloud, where did cloud come from? You know, it started with virtualization that you could control programmatically. It was an IT endeavor that engineers really gravitated to. They're like, oh, cool. I can turn on a server with an API call. And it evolved from that use case. So it became an engineering-led effort to put cloud in place. And engineering and security don't always pair up. I mean... In good organizations, they do, but they don't always historically. And so I think that security has been kind of catching up over the years in cloud, if you think like historically. To where we are today, I think it's certainly capable. You can do it. You can secure a cloud very well. There's no doubt about that. You just have to know what you're doing and you, know, you have to bring the right resources to bear. I think as far as the cloud providers and what they're offering from a tooling perspective, the big players are offering very capable platforms on the security front, right? There might be smaller offshoots where it's a little, little less clear, but you know, your AWSs and your Microsofts of the world, you've got all the tools you need for sure. There's no right. doubt about it. Yeah, it's very secure, built in, and, yeah. and they do provide you the tools. And I do concur with that. I think and just in general, if you're outside the IT world, you can't fathom how somebody or something else is managing your infrastructure and you can't touch and feel it, but you want to feel good about where your infrastructure is, where your data lies and so on. So I think we have some education to do, frankly, just in general to the larger population about how the data will be managed contained, secured, and so on. And to your point, I think it's an evolution. I think we have some catch-up to do. We're catching up, and I think we're doing a good job, in my opinion. And obviously, I welcome your comment on this, but I think whether you're cloud or on-prem, you face this very similar risks, whether you're on-prem or in the cloud, in terms of hackers wanting to get to you. Completely agree. And I think that a lot of the surface area challenges have normalized, whereas there are some internal considerations from security perspective that still make cloud implementation is a little trickier, but when you're talking about your outside surface area, it's like the same thing. It's mm -hmm. all virtualized computing. So it's just a question of how you're configuring it and what is your defense in depth kind of approach? Like what are the layers of the onion that you're putting in place to prevent people getting into your world? And whether that's on-prem, whether that's in the cloud, 
they're the similar similar sets of controls. There's not a big divergence there. In fact, there's some control sets now in the space that are cutting across, providing services to me as a provider. If I had a hybrid environment, like you said, some people are doing hybrids, you know, where I can cut across both. And that's great right. because now you're getting kind of consistent control sets, consistent configuration, and you're reducing we'll call it some of the big outages that we've seen in the last couple of years, like with a fastly outage or something like that, where somebody just like types the wrong thing for a specific configuration, you know, less chance of those scenarios when you have enterprise-wide controls that can cut across both environments. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I want to just switch gears a little bit. So we were talking about SaaS and infrastructure. I think we're talking a lot about cloud and infrastructure now, but I want to talk about specific SaaS applications, you know, like the, to the end user who may be watching this. I mean, they might be taking advantage of a SaaS-based application, whether it be for, for simplicity, whether it's HubSpot or Salesforce or maybe QuickBooks or some accounting you know, or finance application online. One of the th questions that we see often, how is my data being collected? Where does it reside? Who's managing that data? And more importantly, how does that data get backed up? If I'm using QuickBooks Online, you know, and or I'm using HubSpot, how do I know if an outage happens? What happens to my data? Is that something that customers ask you guys as an organization? How do they get that data back? Well, sure. This is a really important question. And in your question, you framed up, I think, two things that are worth mentioning. So in the SaaS world, there's like consumer level SaaS applications. Mm -hmm. You mentioned QuickBooks. And although it's a business, it's still kind of like you're a small business. You're almost just an average consumer if you're using QuickBooks online, typically. And then at the same time, Insurity, where we're selling enterprise SaaS software to a business. And so how those two different kind of engagements shape up is a little different, right? As a consumer, you're putting a lot of faith in your SaaS provider, almost in a blind context. You sign some set of terms and services that you can't read because you don't have enough time to, and you say, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, sure. I'll give my firstborn daughter, <laughs> whatever. Like you have no idea what it's saying. And then on the other side of this, where there's an enterprise engagement, we're partnering with our clients. It's a different kind of relationship. So right. we're providing our clients evidence of backups, if that's the question. We bring in a third party to validate our systems. And, you know, that third party is independent and saying, okay, oh, look, I've reviewed all this evidence and I'm going to write a report. And then we hand that report to our clients. So much different set of circumstances, right? In enterprise SaaS, there's this world of third party validation that's basically, I would say, come about, especially in the last 10 years. And back in the day, you used to get a certification from a data center, right? Right. And that's evolved now into other industry standards, whether it's ISO certs, SOC 2 certs, things like that, um, which we all use in different ways so that we can trust each other. There are mechanisms of trust. I think it'd be great to see that continue to refine because it's, it's still a big challenge how we all handle that trust between one another. I like what you said. You put a blind trust. We're picking on QuickBooks right now, but I mean, it could be <laughs> HubSpot is an enterprise-wide tool. I mean, it, it may not be as big as Salesforce, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of enterprises who run on HubSpot, a lot, right? And you're putting yeah. a lot of faith. You're putting your entire marketing database in there. You're putting your entire client database in there. You're putting a lot of financial data. You're putting a lot of stuff in there. And then this is something that I ask customers when they're talking to me about their SaaS applications, I ask them the question, how much do you know about that application? Yes. I mean, they may be publicly traded. I'm sure they've got a whole slew of compliance requirements they need to go through. But the day you want to pull the plug with that provider, 
what happens? Who does that data belong to? And, and I think those are the questions that we, we should be asking more of. You know, you mentioned you, you partner with your clients, so there's a lot more third-party validation and due diligence that happens. But I think the blind trust needs to come down a little bit and you have to ask more from your provider because if a, a platform that big gets breached, they're impacting thousands and thousands of businesses. Absolutely. Or yeah. millions of individuals. Individuals. Have, those businesses put their data in, into yeah. QuickBooks or whatever yeah. it might be. And you're seeing that almost a continuous stream of like large consumer data breaches that are sometimes a result of that. But I think as consumers, we don't have great mechanisms for that yet because we are still beholden to these third-party providers. And Take QuickBooks out of the example set for a second, you know, just the Apples and Googles of the world. We, as individuals, we have no leverage, right? None whatsoever. <laughs> to, to force them to like, oh, I'm going to send you a red line of your terms of service. <laughs> Good luck with that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that leads me to my last question because we don't have a lot of time here with you. And I really appreciate the fact that you took the time today. When it comes to data privacy and maintaining data privacy compliance, when you're servicing customers, and you guys are North America wide, and forgive me if I'm using you guys as an example, but you may have customers globally. How difficult is your job when you have to comply with various data privacy rules, both locally, state level, federal level, and globally? I mean, you've got GDPR in Europe, you've got various laws in the US, state, state laws. And of course, if you're dealing with Canadian laws, you've got various provincial laws. So how does a CISO or how does your compliance team deal with that? Does that become a huge undertaking? I'd like just to get into the intricacies of it without giving us too many details. Yeah, of course. It's an important area that we do put a lot of focus in, of course, because we need to be confident that we're meeting all of the ins and outs of the regulations. But I would say this, we try to find commonalities between them. And one of the benefits of some of these scenarios is a lot of the I'll call it the state privacy laws as an example, they start to kind of look a lot alike. So what you tend to do as a business is you implement actually the, the highest bar. You say, okay, well, which state has the most challenging regulations? Let's just meet their regulations and then we'll meet all the state's regulations. You do things like that to to really kind of normalize. And so instead of using the lowest common denominator, you're using the <laughs> highest common denominator. Maybe it's a little more work, but you know your clients will be satisfied. You know that their data will be safe and be held against the regulations appropriately. That tends to be the model. I'm not saying that's always the case, but you, you know, you try to find ways to find efficiency across the regulations by doing things like that. Very good answer. So look for the best model that, that exists and strive to achieve that. Okay. But you're exceeding the law in most cases, right? And no, I, I agree. I agree with that. It's just that sometimes it, it becomes overwhelming when it comes to regulation and compliance. A lot of yeah. people kind of get overwhelmed and then they try to fit everything into one box. But I think your approach is, is you know, bang on where you take the high standard and then meet it. At least, you know, it can't be beat, which is yeah. a, a really good approach. And I appreciate that. For sure. And it's a continuous effort. The regulations are going to continue to evolve. We are continuously monitoring that. Um, it's, there is no one size fits all, unfortunately. Yeah, um, yeah, no, but, I, and I, I can concur with that. I think the regulation is making us better as IT professionals, frankly. I know it's not always comfortable to have to adhere to them, and it's costly, and it's painful sometimes. 
But I mean, we're in an industry where it's ever evolving. And like you said, the attack service is just getting larger, more compelling for criminals. So you have to make sure that you're covering yourself in all areas. And especially if you're dealing with end users or whether you're B2B or B2C, I think you need to make sure that validation uh, is, is done properly, especially if you want to continue to do business with individuals. Completely agree. I think most of the terms in the regulations are actually helpful, meaning they are actually things that we're doing already, right? Sometimes there are a couple gotchas, maybe a regulator hasn't updated their mindset. Every once in a while, you'll find some intricacies or quirks maybe in the regulations, or maybe the language is really vague. Those are the areas that cause most consternation usually. But overall, I, I think that data privacy regulations are a good thing in the sense that they codify what we should already be doing. I'm going to coin that term. Gonna use it. <laughs> <laughs> really like that. Really like that, Jay. Well, Jay, listen, you've given us a, a lot of your time and we appreciate it. I think this is going to be a good episode, short, but sweet. We, we tackled one specific topic and, and I really appreciate what you've done for us. Good luck at Insurity. I know it's only been a few months you've been there and it's an exciting opportunity for you. The team is great there. I know them well personally. So I wish you the best of luck. And again, thank you for the time and uh, hope to speak again soon. Absolutely. Likewise. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Jay. Thank you for listening to 10 Questions to Cyber Resilience, brought to you by Assurance IT. Assurance IT is in the cybersecurity space, specializing in data protection and compliance. Since 2011, they primarily help mid-sized enterprises in Canada. If you have questions about protecting your data, reach out to us directly at info at assuranceit.ca or visit assuranceit.ca.